For years, Crystal Catron and her daughter Callie were virtually joined at the hip. She was my first firstborn. Oh, my best friend. Like, um, I did everything with her and spent half of my life with her. In some ways, the two of them almost grew up together. We've been pretty much everywhere. We've been to the beach, stargazing and everything. Literally, my best friend. Crystal was just a few weeks shy of her 19th birthday when she gave birth to Callie, which may be why it felt more like they were sisters than mother and daughter. They wore matching shoes. They played lots of card games. They even had Disney tattoos that fit together. When Callie was about 16, Crystal came home one day with a Mickey Mouse tattoo on the inside of her leg. It's all colored in. It looks just like Mickey Mouse with the red outfit on, the big yellow shoes. Callie loved it. She wanted one to kind of match her mother's. So they went and got Callie a tattoo of Minnie Mouse in that pink polka dot dress. And their tattoos became a literal touch point for the two of them. And every time we saw each other and hugged, we'd always make sure that they they touched too. <laughs> it was just a thing. But as Callie grew up, things got more complicated. Callie had two children of her own. She started using drugs. And sometimes she'd even disappear for days at a time. I didn't know who she was. Like, she didn't act like she cared about anybody or anything. And the phone calls were getting further apart. Then, in 2022, when Callie was about 24, she seemed to just vanish. I just felt something. Like, my stomach started hurting, and I was sitting there like, Something is wrong with Callie, and she needs to be found now. From Recorded Future News, I'm Dina Temple-Raston. And this is Click Here, a podcast about all things cyber and intelligence. We tell true stories about the people making and breaking our digital world. And today, a pretty straightforward issue that you'd think all our advances in technology would have solved by now helping locate and identify the missing and unidentified in America. Other countries seem to be using facial recognition software to address the issue. Ukraine has been using it to identify fallen soldiers since the beginning of the war. Ukraine is getting a high-tech boost from face recognition technology, artificial intelligence... Israel is using it to identify the dead and people who went missing after the October 7th attacks. But here in the U.S., not so much. While law enforcement has eagerly adopted AI and facial recognition to identify suspects, often incorrectly, facial recognition hasn't been used by authorities to do something much less controversial, to put a name to a face of someone who has gone missing. We take a look at why and meet a group of volunteer sleuths who are trying to fix that. Stay with us. Hello, I'm Adam Fleming from the Global Story podcast from the BBC World Service. We are looking at Lena Khan, the face of the US government's battle to regulate big tech. She's already redefined the way we talk about monopolies. Now she's taking on the likes of Amazon and Meta. 
But who is she? And will she win? The Global Story brings you fresh takes and smart perspectives from BBC journalists around the world. Find us wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. This is Click Here. Missing people have, of course, always been an issue. But the program for tracking them down systematically, strangely, wasn't created until about 50 years ago, after this one case. A six-year-old named Aten Pates disappeared in Lower Manhattan one day. Pates disappeared in May of 1979. He was last seen by his mom walking to a school bus stop by himself. Aten's case is now considered an inflection point. It had a kind of before and an after. Before Aton, parents let six-year-olds walk to the bus stop alone. After he disappeared, no one did. His case was one of the things that led to the founding of the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Aton was the reason there started being pictures of missing kids on the back of milk cartons. But the disappearance of people like Crystal's daughter Callie, a young woman in her 20s without much money and a drug problem, they can just drop off the face of the earth and not get much attention. Though Crystal did what she could to make sure that didn't happen. So I was making a lot of trips to where she had been hanging out a lot and was asking around, leaving flyers, like, have you seen Callie here lately? I was asking everybody to please like, let me know if they heard from her or talked to her or saw her. When she wasn't working, she was making copies of paper flyers with Callie's picture on it, and she was passing them out and taping them to telephone poles. And believe it or not, this analog way of searching for her daughter did unearth some important clues. She learned about the people Callie was hanging out with and boyfriends she hadn't known about and the full extent of her daughter's drug use. She would always tell me, like, things that would happen that I wouldn't know, like Supermans and Mario's and... Um, I think those are now ecstasies pills, but I didn't know, like, if I would ask about it, she'd just, like, Google it. Then, in October 2022, Crystal got a phone call. It was Callie, finally. Very quickly, it became clear that her daughter was in some sort of trouble. I actually talked to her. She had first called and told me that she was in Chicago, that, that. Callie wanted her mom to drive up from Kansas and pick her up. And then the second call was asking to see if I had figured out anything yet because I was trying to get money to get there to get her. And she was supposed to be trying to get closer to me. But from where she called me from in Chicago, she wasn't getting closer. But then, abruptly, the phone call stopped. I didn't hear anything from her. After October 14th. Thanksgiving came and went. 
Her father's birthday, which was at the beginning of December, came and went as well. And that's when you got that bad feeling in your stomach. Yes. I know something's wrong. What in your head made you think she's missing? She wouldn't have went Halloween or Thanksgiving without calling me and the kids. I don't care how mad she was, she wouldn't have missed the holidays. Trying to find Callie shouldn't have been so hard or even so analog, given how the rest of the world deals with this issue of missing people. Just consider one of the biggest cases of mass missing we've seen in years. As the sun rose on October 7th, revelers at the Nova Music Festival heard a sound they never expected, gunfire. The Nova Music Festival was attacked by Hamas, and people weren't even sure who exactly attended. It wasn't purely ticketed. So how do you figure that out? We talked about this in a previous episode. A group of Israeli volunteers decided to use facial recognition and AI. It ended up being a little bit like trying to identify all the people who went to Central Park on a particular Saturday, except it was who went to a concert in the middle of nowhere close to the border with Gaza. It seems like an impossible question to answer, but one that you can't get wrong. And you have to understand every person counts. You, you, can't, you can't make mistakes here. This is Karine Nahan, and she's a professor of information science at Reichman University, which is near Tel Aviv. It's not like you, you did a small mistake and you can continue. Now we have to start going one name after the other and start to understand what's, what happened to each one of them. As many as 4,000 people were supposed to attend that concert. And what Karine and the team of volunteers were hoping was that if they could find a way to identify who was there... They could tell families if their loved ones had died in the attacks or had perhaps been taken hostage. It was really crafting a kind of a picture from so many sources of information. It's, it's really an investigative effort. An investigative effort that needed a little help from technology, specifically facial recognition software. But not just to identify faces. The same software can now be used to help identify other things on a person. So, for example, we identify a person by the fabric of his underwear. Uh, we identified people uh, by looking at their, at their tattoos, by looking at their, at their properties, at their unique properties of their body, uh, and by that, identifying their face. So it's, it's a flip, right? Usually you identify the face and then you identify the body, but here we did something opposite. And then they cross-referenced that with all the information they'd gathered on potential victims with videos Hamas had posted themselves. It took them a couple of months, but they ended up identifying nearly everyone at that concert in the desert. 4,000 people. Which, by the way, happens to be almost the same number of unidentified dead bodies which are found in the U.S. every year. Which begs the question... Why aren't we able to use that same technology to help identify missing people here in the U.S.? The answer, it seems, is twofold. I, I feel it's a matter of prioritization and importance. This is Toju Duke, and she's an expert in something called responsible AI. She was at Google for about a decade, and she was helping their AI teams make sure the algorithms they were writing weren't biased or doing more harm than good. Like, what's the biggest challenge in the U.S.? What's, what are the biggest challenges that the government 
is committed to to face and to reduce and to tackle um and if missing people is one of them then yes why not definitely use the technology available and put in the resources to use it But it doesn't appear that the government here in the U.S. has designated this issue as a priority. And they don't appear to be buying and using this technology to help identify missing people. We spoke to two executives of major facial recognition software companies on background, and they confirmed this. They said as far as they knew, their software wasn't being used in the U.S. to identify the missing. Which is a little crazy because according to the National Crime Information Center, some 600,000 people are reported missing in the U.S. every year. And while a lot of those are runaways or kids snatched by family members, a significant portion are adults who vanish under mysterious circumstances. What's more, about 4,500 cadavers go unidentified every year, too. Let's just do it. You know, if the government wants to put resources behind anything, they can. They can find the money to put it in. But it isn't a priority, Toju says, because most of the missing, like Callie, are from marginalized groups, transient people, racial minorities, substance abusers, or members of the LGBTQ community. But even if AI technology was being used here, it comes with its own set of complications. Things like algorithm bias. We've been talking about that since 2019. That's when the National Institute of Standards and Technology, or NIST, released a report that found most algorithms were really bad at being able to identify people of color, which is part of the reason why law enforcement's use of facial recognition to identify suspects has been so fraught. Because a lot of the time, the algorithms just get it wrong. Computer algorithm misidentified his use face. of faulty facial recognition technology led to her Watch wrongful facial arrest. facial recognition software had misidentified him as a theft suspect in Louisiana. He and said, while some of these algorithms have improved, Toju says, a lot of them haven't for very non-technical reasons. Um, I, th- I think it starts from the teams that are building it. They're literally 90% white men. I don't think it's any um, malicious intent to exclude people from these data sets. It's just, it's just a natural bias towards um, people who look like you, sound like you, and are within your social network and your social influence. But we've been talking about this since 2019. So even if I'm that guy, wouldn't I just, to fix this problem, because you want it to work well, wouldn't I just feed it the data set that it was lacking? So, so the next problem there is the cost. It costs a lot of money to make it very diverse. So it's not just about the pictures, right? You also have to feed the algorithm details that are often very specific to different ethnicities, countries, and cultures. When you weigh the, the, the pros and cons, for many organizations and many companies, they don't see the value like when they think about how much profit they'll make out of it. Businesses look at this problem and just don't see the economic sense in addressing it. So they've decided to ignore it. Elected officials have too. And they'll probably keep turning a blind eye until they're presented with a compelling reason to do the right thing. Just look at what happened with another controversial AI technology in the past couple of weeks. The issue of deepfakes. We've been talking about them for years, how they target women, how they target children. So what motivated a bipartisan group of U.S. senators to finally address it? 
two words, Taylor Swift. What did you think I'd say to that? Does a scorpion sting when fighting back? The Senate recently introduced a bill that criminalizes the spread of non-consensual sexualized images generated by artificial intelligence. The bill was in direct response to the recent proliferation of pornographic AI-made images of Taylor on X, the site formerly known as Twitter. And I'm like, but this problem has been here for a very long time. I understand Taylor Swift is very important and she's a human being as well, you know, but do we have to wait till someone important and big um, is a victim to horrible things like this before we sit up? But all is not lost. Maybe the authorities aren't very focused here, but some people are. Regular citizens with computers and a desire to help. And they've got a kind of homegrown facial recognition system that is helping locate missing people and allow their families to find some peace, including families like Callie's. Stay with us. Blockchain, NFTs, AI. What does this mean for you and me? I'm Sherelle Dorsey, host of the TED Tech Podcast, where we bring you the latest innovations and biggest ideas in tech. Tech is evolving fast and it affects our lives, from the metaverse to the watches on our wrists. You'll learn why people in AI make good business partners, about our future self-driving robo-taxi, what the next generation of Siri, Alexa, Google looks like, and a lot more. Find TED Tech on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. My name is Rihanna Lee, and I'm a college graduate. I'm from New York. My sign is a Virgo. I've been interested in unidentified individuals since 2021. If you press Rihanna, though, it's clear her interest in the unidentified goes back quite a bit further. Her mom used to drive one of those vans that picked up human remains for the medical examiner's office in Brooklyn. You know, like CSI crime scene investigation. How do you talk to a dead body? I let him talk to me, actually. In fact, he would go in the field, and when she got there, she would be picking up the bodies, putting it in the bag, rolling into the car. It was a process. Maybe because her family was so used to being around dead bodies, Rihanna didn't see it as ghoulish. So she started going through a database for the National Missing and Unidentified Person System, or NamUs. NamUs was created as a clearinghouse for missing, unidentified, and unclaimed persons cases. This is one of their ads. It's a database full of missing and unidentified people that medical examiners, coroners, and law enforcement officials use to crack these kinds of cases in the U.S. Think of it as an online photo album of the dead and missing. And I just seen certain things, and I was just so interested. It just became one of those things that she scrolled through, out of habit, almost like you might scroll through Instagram or Facebook. She'd look at the cases all the time. And as she did, she started to notice a pattern about which cases got solved and which ones never seemed to move. The ones that moved out of that database into the resolve category seemed to be the most high-profile cases. Not Taylor Swift famous people, necessarily, but people whose families seemed to have means or were in jurisdictions where the police departments had budgets for genetic testing or, less often, facial recognition software subscriptions. 
The cases that didn't get solved were mostly like Callie's and Crystal's, people who didn't have much money or the clout needed to hound the police into figuring out what happened to their loved ones. So Rihanna decided to do something about it. She founded something called the Unidentified and Unsolved, a Facebook group of regular people who scour that NamUs database and then try to put a name to a face by scraping missing person databases and posting online callouts from people who are looking for loved ones. Everyone deserves their name, regardless if they have family that's still living or may not have the best situation. We just try our best to make sure they go home to somebody. She and a core group of volunteers typically post a dozen unsolved cases from NamUs to their Facebook group each day. And sometimes they'll post sketches of the unidentified or missing on a TikTok page as well. I asked her to show me how it works. I'll pull it right up for you so we can discuss it a little more. This case was actually a good one. Riona started scrolling through NamUs looking for a particular case that had recently caught her eye. It was a missing woman on the West Coast. She's actually in Oregon. It caught my eye because I feel like she has significant facial features. So if someone actually saw the pictures, they're so distinctive, they'd probably knew who she is. She just stands out to me compared to every other woman that's on here, regardless of race. And I just feel like it is also just strong. And also because her tattoos just look like it symbolizes so much. The woman had a tattoo of a Buddha, another notable characteristic people might recognize. It just seems so peaceful. Her picture of her and the sketch of her just looks so peaceful. It speaks volume. The unidentified community is currently working on her case, trying to figure out who she is. A little like that Israeli group did after October 7th, but without all the fancy algorithms. Rihanna said they haven't identified her yet, but she's hoping they will soon. I just feel like someone should recognize her. Mostly they do their work sort of manually. They research cases online or publicize them on social media and then hope someone recognizes the person. But more recently, they've started using facial recognition software, though they don't use it much because they're volunteers and subscriptions are pretty expensive and facial recognition, as we discussed before, has limitations when it comes to marginalized communities. Our group has now used PIMIs and PIMIs. It's basically a reverse image search. Give it a sample photograph, it'll scour the internet for matches. Rihanna says they've had mixed results so far, like this teenager they were looking for. I had a Jane Doe who was about the ages of 14 to 17 in the New York area. When we used her morgue photo to be searched up on PIMIs, it pulled a school website. And it had different pictures of multiple children, which I felt was kind of odd, but maybe similar to the case since she does look young. She says it doesn't work so well on correctly identifying people of color. And because it costs so much money, it can't really be their go-to solution. But they've been able to successfully identify seven people so far, and three of them were identified using PIM eyes. It's clear that for now, using AI or facial recognition to identify the missing in this country isn't coming to a medical examiner's office or database near you anytime soon. So lower tech methods like Rihanna's are all we have. And while they often work, they depend a lot on luck. 
someone seeing something and then maybe saying something. That's what happened in Crystal's case. Remember, she's the mother whose daughter Callie went missing. And it turns out she and Rihanna and the unidentified crossed paths about a year ago. It started with a phone call to Crystal from a friend of Callie's. And um, so she's like, Crystal, get on TikTok. And I'm like, TikTok? And she's like, yeah. I'm like, I don't have TikTok. Crystal had never heard of TikTok. And so while I'm trying to install TikTok, she's sending me these autopsy pictures. Like, how are you getting these? And she's like, they're posted on TikTok. Someone had seen sketches of a Jane Doe on the unidentified TikTok channel and sent them to Callie's best friend asking her, hey, is this your friend Callie? I kept on asking if she was joking. And this whole time, I'm like, I don't have a good internet connection. And I'm trying to download TikTok. Um, and I'm not wanting to look. Like Crystal was finally able to pull up the TikTok. And what came up was a series of pictures. Very sad song along with a slideshow of autopsy pictures. As the video went on, Crystal's heart sank. She saw someone who looked like Callie. All of her hair was cut off. She had a black eye. It looked like a hole, like underneath her ear. And then she saw the matching Minnie Mouse tattoo, the one in that polka dot dress. It was her daughter. Crystal came to find out that Callie had died in Chicago from a blunt force trauma to the head, probably not long after that last phone call she made to her mom in October. The police found grainy surveillance video footage at the bus station. Someone was beating up someone who looked a lot like Callie. Crystal had to drive to Chicago to make the identification in person. She had Callie cremated and then took her remains with her back to Kansas. Some of the way she sat on my lap, and I had taken her baby blanket, which the box was still wrapped up in. What happened to the morgue video? Do you do you still watch it or Yeah. Why? Just all the things that like the tattoos. Like, I'm never going to see those on her again. She started reciting all the tattoos that Callie had and talked about what they meant. We had the Just Breathe on the arms together. Uh, the established, hers was 1998, mine's 1979. She can't see any of that anymore, she says. So even though it's heartbreaking, the morgue video lets her hang on to that. Crystal says knowing Callie is dead is hard, but all those months wondering where she was, whether she was okay, the not knowing was even harder. And you can never know for sure, but it's quite possible she wouldn't have had to go through all that waiting if the authorities had made it a priority to get the best tools and technology in place so mothers like Crystal could suffer a little less. This is Click Here. Here are some of the top cyber and intelligence stories of the past week. 
We're getting disturbing new details about China's efforts to secretly infiltrate and potentially attack our key infrastructure and literally our way of life. A coalition of international security agencies has published an advisory alleging that state-sponsored hackers are already inside certain U.S. computer networks, and they've been lurking there for at least five years. Also last week, federal authorities seized several websites accused of selling malware called Warzone Rat. The U.S. Attorney's Office says authorities arrested two people in Malta and Nigeria in connection with the takedown. Rats, or remote access trojans, are a kind of malware that allow attackers to remotely control an infected computer. Once the rat is running on a network, the attacker can send commands to it and receive information back in response. In this case, officials said attackers were stealing passwords, taking screenshots, and had the ability to watch victims through their webcams. And finally, AI robo-scam callers, beware. The FCC has made it a crime to use AI-generated voices, effective immediately. They say a 30-year-old law aimed at curbing junk phone calls also covers AI robocalls. The agency announced the change shortly after New Hampshire voters received phone calls that sounded like President Joe Biden just before they were going to go to the polls to vote in a primary. What a bunch of malarkey. This is AI Joe Biden. Your vote makes a difference in November, not this Tuesday. If you would like to be removed... The company alleged to be behind the fake calls is now under criminal investigation. Click Here is a production of Recorded Future News. Dina Temple-Raston is the host and managing editor of the show. Sean Powers, Kat Shucknecht, and me, Jada Domalik, produce it. Karen Duffin and Lou Olkowski are our editors, and Lucas Riley is our staff writer. Darren Ancrum does our fact-checking. Ben Levingston composed the theme music and other original music you heard. We also use music from Blue Dot Sessions. Megan Goff is our staff illustrator. That's it for this week. We'll be back on Tuesday. Looking for more of the cybersecurity and intelligence coverage you get on Click Here? Then check out our sister publication, The Record, from Recorded Future News. You'll get breaking cyber news from reporters in New York, Washington, London, and Kiev, among others. And you'll see for yourself why it attracts hundreds of thousands of page views every month. Just go to the record.media.